Let me relate an incident that occurred to me years ago. We were as a family on vacation in Normandy, in France. It was late evening uh, with only one car behind us as we drove along this road. For whatever reason, perhaps not listening to my wife's instructions, but I turned left into a one-way street. The only problem was I began to go the wrong direction. I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm sure that those of you who drive are expert drivers. You don't make these kind of mistakes. But I was heading in the wrong direction on a one-way street. I cannot explain to you the sensation. All the hairs on my body seemed stood on end. A sinking feeling at the pit of my stomach. And the car that was behind me, the driver, recognizing the mistake I'd made, began blowing furiously on his horn, and I recognized very rapidly I'd done something wrong. And so I made a U-turn right there and then, and by the grace of God was delivered from death. I had missed the sign, you know that big red sign with a horizontal white stroke in the middle, and under it written, do not enter. I had seen none of that. We have a tendency to miss signals, whether it is driving or in our homes. Most husbands know that to be true. Our wives go to the hairdresser. They bob their hair. Okay, we don't, let's not talk about bobbing because uh, that's an old word. They do things to their hair, and they come back and they stand before us, and they look at us, and we're reading the paper or doing something else or playing some kind of game or watching football, and we look at them and we say, I see you are in a good mood, dear, this evening. We miss the signal. We don't understand that she wants a comment and a complimentary comment regarding her hair. We can miss all kinds of signals without much injury. But there are signals, perhaps using out of context the expression of Peter Berger, the sociologist. There are signals of transcendence that we ought not to miss. Signals that have come from God to us, particularly in the text here in Matthew 27. Matthew 27 is an account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a passage, it narrates, first of all, the event leading up to the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ is interrogated by Pilate. He's scourged and mocked in the praetorium. And we see his journey to Golgotha, where he is crucified in chapter 27 and verse 35. The passage tells us what occurs before the cross. The second division of the passage tells us what occurred while our Lord was on the cross. That is, in verse 35 to 50. And then what occurred 
after his death on the cross in verses 51 to 54. The rest of the chapter deals with the burial of the Lord. But our concern lies with verses 35 to 54. The events that occurred while our Lord was on the cross and what occurred after he died on the cross. We want to look at these signals in the text. Certain phenomena in the text that carry and are freight with theological meaning. The first phenomenon, the first signal of transcendence that we must recognize in the text is the phenomenon of darkness. The phenomenon of darkness. Matthew states tersely that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in verse 35. Having arrived at this hill, he says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. He does not explain the crucifixion. In fact, all of the gospel writers shy away from giving us any kind of details regarding the physical crucifixion of the Lord. It was a barbaric act. An act that in Roman times was impolite to speak of. The cross was never to be discussed in polite conversation. As I've said to you, it was, been, it was one of the most terrifying way of dying. And they crucified him. An event of unimaginable horror for the victim. Where he was strung up either by ropes or by nails, naked in a public place for all to see. Because ultimately the cross was not merely to kill somebody because the Romans would have had many ways of dispatching somebody easily. But they wanted to make an example of that person. They wanted to tell the world this is what occurs with those who have royal pretensions, with those who think that they are kings. This is what occurs to any who wants to defy the might of Rome. This is what Rome does to those who do not know their place. We crucify them. We see then the crucifixion of the Lord. But we see the suffering of the Lord that is more than merely physical. Because we see the mockery that our Lord Jesus Christ endured. In verse 39 and following, we find that there are three groups of people who rain scorn and contempt upon the Lord. Having crucified the Lord, and the soldiers devoured his garment, they're keeping watch over him. They have put the charges against him above his head. Verse 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They have crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and on the other on his left. And then in verse 39, we see the first group that treats our Lord with contempt. We, the first group is the passerbyers, those who are passing by. And those who pass by blasphemed him, wagging their head and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. 
If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. You claim you can destroy the temple. You, can, you claim you can destroy the temple and erect it again in three days. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. You notice the second group that, that Matthew describes in verse 41 as the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. These are the leading religious figures in Israel. These are the men who comprise the Sanhedrin, the body of 70. And they too scorn our Lord, ridicule him. And what is it that they say to him in verse 42? He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. For he says I am the son of God. Fundamental to their charge against the Lord is. He saves others. But cannot save himself. In fact in verse 44. We see the next group. The third group. Of those who scorn the Lord. Even the robbers who were crucified with him. Reviled him. With the same thing, they were saying the same thing as those who were passing by, and the chief priests and the scribes, they were saying, he saved others, but cannot save himself. But it is right here, in the scorn that is thrown upon the Lord, that Matthew unfolds this theology of salvation in this gospel. Because he begins the gospel with a, programmatic statement, the statement by the angel to Joseph regarding the birth of Christ. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. In Matthew one twenty one, This is what Christ has come to do, to save. And interestingly, the verb to save occurs some four times in this little pericope. We see it in verse 40 and 42 and 49. This whole language of salvation. And what Matthew does here is that he, having told us in chapter 121 that the purpose of the Lord is that his name shall be called Jesus. He shall save his people. He begins to explain how our Lord will save people from their sins. And primarily he will save his people from their sins By not saving himself. If you are the son of God. They are saying. Come down from the cross. You save others but cannot save yourself. He saves his people. By not saving himself. That is by dying on the cross for them. You see Jesus cannot save himself. And save his people at the same time. He saves his people then by not saving himself. And there is the implication then of substitution in the fact that he gives his life for his people. In verse 45, having been reviled by these three groups, Matthew now comes to the first phenomenon, darkness. 
now from the sixth hour, so that it is from noon, 12 p.m., until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. that afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. Here, all of the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, of course, and Mark and Luke, record the phenomenon of darkness. Some have questioned the nature of darkness. Is it a literal darkness that came over the land? Or is it metaphorical? Something more sinister is at work. I know that astronomists, those who study the movement of the heavenly bodies, have argued that there was no solar eclipse in that period. So where did the darkness come from? It may have been physically induced, but we must understand the darkness to be a supernatural act. It communicates something about the death of Christ. This is a signal of transcendence, a signal with greater import. What does the darkness represent? First of all, we need to know that the darkness symbolizes divine judgment. Very often in the Old Testament, when darkness occurs, and I'm not saying exclusively so, but often, darkness is used as a sign of judgment. Take, for instance, what happens in the plagues that Moses brought upon the Egyptians. One of the plagues that Moses brought was the plague of darkness. In Exodus 10, 22, so Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Exodus 10, 22. Here, God brings darkness upon the land for three hours. In the prophetic literature, the prophets use the term darkness as a harbinger of divine judgment. So you read, for instance, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Here the prophet is speaking about the judgment that God will bring upon his people. And in books like Joel and Zephaniah and even in Isaiah 13, darkness is used in the description of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of shaking and darkness. And darkness then is a sign, a symbol of divine judgment. In fact, Matthew himself uses darkness with this in mind. Three times he states that God will cause the unrepentant to go into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, and Matthew 25, verse 30. The darkness that then engulfs the land while our Lord was on the cross, speaks of God's judgment upon the nation. 
but more particularly, God's judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is noteworthy that after darkness came upon the Lord, upon the land, we read in verse 46, that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it is out of the darkness that Jesus calls out in the language of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I would want to suggest to you that in that darkness, something happened that is absolutely mysterious, but nevertheless real. For you notice that when our Lord was in the garden, that there was a great struggle, a great agonizing. So much so that sweat, like great drops of blood, fell from him. And I would want to suggest to you that what agonized the Lord more than anything else was not merely the physical suffering of crucifixion, but this separation. And so I believe that Jesus descended into hell. I believe that when he was on the cross, he endured hell, because hell is separation from God. You see, sin separates from God. And as the sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ in those hours of darkness was separate from his father. I understand the theological difficulties. I understand the unity of the Trinity. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one and are inseparable. But Jesus as the God-man was not only abandoned by Judas and by Peter and the disciples, not only by the nation of Israel itself, but as a sin-bearer, he felt and experienced a profound loneliness and separation from his father. He did not merely feel forsaken, but he was forsaken, abandoned as our sin-bearer. He was judged for our sins. Darkness teaches that the cross was an act of judgment imposed upon the Son of God for our sins. But there's another phenomenon that we ought to consider. We find that in verse 51, that after Jesus had cried out, some believe he was calling for Elijah, and it is because there was at least in the Jewish literature of the time, the belief that Elijah would come as a rescuer and a deliverer for the people. So they waited to see if Elijah would come and rescue him. Matthew says, Our Lord cried again with a loud voice and yielded up, handed over his spirit. Now our Lord did not have his life taken from him. He dismissed his life because he is the author of life. No man can take his life from him. He must give his life. It's interesting that Matthew records only one cry from the cross. In other words, we have only the language, the word, one statement that our Lord makes. 
And that is the statement of his separation from his father. But in verse 51, we come to another signal of transcendence. Another signal that is pregnant with meaning, theological meaning. Because after the Lord yielded up his spirit, Matthew says that the veil of the temple was torn in two. So now we come to the second phenomenon of the cross. The first was darkness. Now we see the torn veil. Notice how he puts this. Then behold, there are some 24 times in the book of Matthew we see this term behold. It's normally there to draw attention to a significant action that's about to occur. Or the heavens open. Behold, the heavens open, we are told in chapter 3. Or the Lord appeared to Joseph in chapter 2. The heavens open, the voice of God came, this is my beloved son. Behold always precedes a momentous occasion. A miraculous working of God. And here we are said, we are told that after our Lord died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The passive voice, the veil was torn, is what we call a divine passive meaning that it is God who tore the veil in two. And it was torn in two to suggest that it was an irrevocable act was completely destroyed. Now, commentators are split over which veil Matthew has in mind. There are some who argue that there is this curtain, and veil and curtain are really the same things. There was a curtain that divided the tabernacle and the temple from the outward court. So if you have this rectangular-shaped object, then you had a curtain here, and outside was the outer court. There was also a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And so there are some who believe that it was the first curtain, the one that divided the outer court from the temple itself, while others believed it was the second curtain, the one that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt and where God dwelt above the cherubim. I would only suggest to you that what Matthew has in mind is a second veil, the one that divides the holy place from the most holy place. And the reason that the writer says, behold, and draws attention, it is because of the significance of the second veil. The first veil had no real spiritual or theological significance, but the second veil did. Now if we are to answer the question, what does a tearing of the veil mean? We must first of all understand the purpose of the veil in the first place. Why was the veil put there? Well, if you go to Exodus 26, in 31 to 33, Moses receives instructions regarding this veil. The Lord says to him, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linens. Or linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim and so on. And then it says, The veil 
shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. What was the veil there for? It was there to keep people out from the holy of holies. It was like that sign that somebody missed that says do not enter. It was there to separate the people, even the priests, from the holy God. God is a consuming fire. It was there to keep God at a distance, at arm's length from his people. So if the veil was meant to separate men from God, the tearing of the veil, the removal of the veil, means that there is no more a separation between God and his people. Thus, the tearing of the veil signifies that access to God is now open to all. Prior to the death of Christ, before the Holy of Holies stood this veil that limited access to God, only the high priest could penetrate beneath or beyond the veil. And he could only do so once a year. He could only enter beyond the veil with blood. And when he went in, he must offer incense, which some theologians believe was a covering for himself. In fact, they believe that he had bells on the hem of his garment. And there was a rope tied around one of his ankles. Lest the Lord were to strike him dead for unrepentant sin, they'll be able to drag him out. Nobody want to go in and face God. The veil was there to separate. But when the Lord Jesus died, something marvelous occurred. The veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Symbolizes that access to God is open. And that this access is irreversible. In this one act, the Lord Jesus, by his death, had abolished the entire Old Testament cultic system. In fact, the temple became now obsolete. Our Lord Jesus, you know, had been predicting the destruction of the temple. See all these things, assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. What was the temple for? The temple was there for men to have a relationship with God. It was there to deal with our sins. But Jesus has come and by his death he has given access to God. It means that the temple was now no longer necessary. Jesus now becomes a new temple. In his person, he is the temple. And you see something of this. For instance, when this man who was paralyzed, and his friends wanted to bring him to Jesus, and they couldn't get in because of the crowd, they removed ties from the roof of the house in which our Lord Jesus Christ met. And they lowered this man before the Lord Jesus. And what does our Lord do? He said to the man, 
Son, your sins are forgiven you. And those who were there, the leaders of the people were quite incensed. Who but God forgives sins? They were upset that there was a man forgiving sins, which is under the purview of God. It's what God does. But I would argue that they were also upset, not just because in their mind an ordinary man was forgiving sins, but they were also upset because of where sin was forgiven. Well, where did God deal with sin in the Old Testament? It was in the temple. That's why people brought sacrifices to the priest in the temple. But Jesus, in this house, in his own person, forgives sins. You don't have to go to the temple anymore because he's the new temple. He's the one who mediates the presence of God. He is the temple. He's the one who grants us access. So the tearing of the veil, the signal of transcendence, it says to humanity that the way to God has now been open. And it's open forever in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's one, or rather a cluster of phenomena that we must look at. The earthquake. The splitting of the graves. And the resurrection of the saints. And together, verses 51b to 53, they stand for one thing. Here, Matthew alone records these events. What I'm saying to you, if you read this text, you will find that Matthew brings attention to these miracles, these signals of transcendence. He says, and the earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the grave, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Mark and Luke mention the tearing of the veil, but only Matthew relates the incident of the earthquake, the splitting of rocks, the opening of graves, and the resurrection of the saints. This section, of course, poses several questions. For instance, there's a question, at least in the scholarly community, regarding when exactly were they raised. Were they raised before our Lord's resurrection or after his resurrection? Why, for instance, did God raise them? What happened to them when they were raised? What kind of bodies did they receive? Did they die after they were raised? Like say, Lazarus eventually died? Or were they taken up into heaven? There are many questions that we may ask of the text, but the author is not interested in satisfying our curiosity. What it tells us even in the difficulties, is pretty straightforward. What it tells us is that when Christ died, there was a mighty earthquake which caused rocks to split, graves to open, and saints who were dead 
came back alive physically. And that after they were raised, after the resurrection of Jesus, they appeared to many so people could see them. What does this mean? What does it refer to? What does the reporting of the earthquake and the splitting of rocks and the opening of graves and particularly the resurrection of the saints refer to? Matthew is indicating by bringing us this cluster of miracles, these signals of transcendence, he's indicating another truth that the death of Jesus, not only is it God's judgment upon Christ for our sins, not only must we see this, the death of Christ, as granting access to God, but that the death of Jesus is life-giving. And I want you to know that Matthew is making a profound point. Because when you read the New Testament, you generally find that the writers associate life with the resurrection of Jesus. You only have to read in Ephesians chapter 1 that Jesus being raised from the dead, we too have received resurrection power. Romans chapter 6, our Lord Jesus Christ, we identified with him in his death and burial and in his resurrection. Because he's raised to newness of life, we have been raised to newness of life. But what Matthew does, distinctively, is that he ties resurrection for believers to the death of Christ. Because it is Christ's death which is the basis of our resurrection. In other words, the reason God raises us to spiritual life and the reason that we will be raised in glorified bodies, it is because Christ's death has paid for our resurrection. Christ's death paid for our sins, but it prays for our resurrection unto newness of life. And Matthew says that when Jesus died, rocks split open, graves were open, and believers rose from the dead. This phenomenon of the open grave and the resurrection of saints reminds us of the truth that Jesus secured life for us by dying. Chuck Colson, who was imprisoned in that Nixon scandal, relates a story of a group of American POWs, prisons of wars, who during the Second World War, each of them were in a camp and each of them received a shovel with which they had to dig all day. And at the end of the day, the prisoners were lined up, all 20 of them, and they had to account for the 20 shovels. And on this particular day, when the prisoners were lined up, one of the guards counted the shovels and he counted 19. And he was very angry. He turned to the prisoners and says, one of the shovels is missing. Who's responsible? And there was a silence. 
And he waited and nobody owned in his mind the crime. And so he said, I'm going to shoot the first five of you unless somebody comes forward and tells me and take ownership for losing the shovel. And finally, a young man, 19 years old, walks to the front of the line with his head bowed. The guard was so incensed, so outraged, that he grabbed him by the scuff of the neck and he pulled him aside and he shot him in the head. Dead right there. After he had marched off, the remaining prisoners counted the shovels and they counted 20. The guard had made a mistake in his counting. That young man, though he had done no wrong, did not save himself. He took the punishment and the blame that was not his own. And you and I are believers because that's what the cross is. But Jesus took the blame. He did not save himself in order to save us. And this evening, we rejoice that Christ did not listen to the last temptation to come down from the cross. He did not save himself because he had to save us. He suffered eternal darkness, eternal separation, that we will never be in outer darkness. But if the darkness teaches us that Jesus endured divine wrath, the torn veil tells us that the death of Jesus has made us welcome to God. We who were aliens and strangers, separated from the covenant people of God, have now been drawn near. We can come to God and we can say, Abba Father, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come having boldness into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That we have been reconciled. That we are now at peace with God. We are able to call him Father. We can come in prayer to him. We can come in worship to him without fear that we would be struck down. Why? Because there is this tearing of the veil. We have full access to our Father because of the cross. Amen. But the cross for Matthew does not only mean that sin has been judged once and for all in Christ, doesn't mean that we merely have access to God, but it means that we have been given eternal life. But if anyone believes in Jesus Christ, they have life and have it now more abundantly, that we can receive spiritual life by merely turning from sin and believing in Jesus. But it means that because Christ died, we have the hope of a resurrection from the dead. These saints who 
came out of the grave are a picture of our ultimate resurrection from dead. Because Jesus died, we also shall live. We'll be given new and glorified bodies. Never again to die. Why? Because Jesus paid for sins and he paid for our resurrection. Amen. Have you been raised from spiritual death? Have you experienced the saving, regenerating power of Christ? Well, if you have, you have received life, but that life has come from his death. When you come to the Lord's table, remember that his death gives life. His death gives us spiritual life. And his death one day will give us resurrection life. A glorified body that is imperishable and incorruptible. The cross then, it means wrath. Jesus suffered the wrath of God. The cross means access to God has been given to us. And it also means that we have in Jesus abundant and imperishable life. May God bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.